This week, a whole bunch of bank CEOs testified before the Senate Banking Committee. There was testimony from CEOs of some of the biggest banks in the country, Charles Scharf of Wells Fargo, David Solomon of Goldman Sachs, Jane Frazier of Citigroup, Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase, Brian Thomas Moynihan of Bank of America, and James Gorman of Morgan Stanley. The hearing comes amid decades of gaping inequality that's only getting worse with record bank profits amid the pandemic stimulus, as millions in the U.S. are on the brink of homelessness and ruin. Nevertheless, here was how the top Republican on the committee, Patrick Toomey, started his opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, today's hearing is about the U.S. financial system, and this financial system proves to be remarkably resilient during COVID. But I am concerned about increasing pressure on banks to embrace wokeism and appease the far left's attacks on capitalism. There are some on the left who claim that wokeism, whatever that is, distracts us from fighting capitalists. And there are liberals who focus only on race and other identity issues and never, ever discuss class. But it's pretty clear that the discourse around so-called wokeism is being used by reactionaries to stop solidarity between working-class people of different races and undermine sympathy with the most marginalized, just like during the Reagan era when reactionaries attacked welfare queens to destroy what little social democracy we had in this country. If Toomey was paying attention, the hearing displayed how his fears about wokeism destroying financial capitalism are complete bullshit. Here was committee chair Sherrod Brown asking the CEO's about their own labor practices. Um, I appreciate many of you have raised wages. A number of you mentioned that. I'm appreciative. I appreciate when you raise your wages for contractors too. But your essential workers also need a voice in the workplace. So my question, yes or no, will each of you set an example to every other company in America, companies that usually follow Wall Street's lead by pledging to remain neutral if your employees want to form a union? Yes or no, Mr. Scharf, start with you. Chairman, we would work with our employees to make sure that their voice is heard and do everything we can to ensure that that voice is loud and clear. Uh, will you remain neutral if they want to form a union? As, as I said, I think we want to engage with them and understand what their concerns are and have a deep understanding of that before we make any decision. Ms. Fraser, would you remain neutral if they want to form a union? Um, we would certainly be um, supportive of our employees having as many opportunities as they possibly can. Uh, Mr. Diamond? No. You got to at least appreciate the bluntness from Diamond because the listen to voices PR crap continued after his answer. Uh, Mr. Moynihan? Uh, no, we would uh, allow them to have their voice heard and, and see what happens. Mr. Solomon? Uh, we would allow their voice to be heard. Does that mean you'd be neutral on forming a union? We'd, we'd allow their voice to be heard. Okay, Mr. Gorman? Like the others, we, we listen to and respect what our employees want to do, and we work with them in that. Diamond's abrasiveness wasn't so charming later in the hearing. Elizabeth Warren brought up the fact that regulators decided to be more lenient on banks at the start of the pandemic, in part by automatically waiving overdraft penalties that banks normally get hit with when they're short on their accounts at the Federal Reserve. Warren noted that regulators told banks to extend this leniency to their customers, but none of them did. She then cited findings that Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, and J.P. Morgan 
charged their customers $4 billion in overdraft fees in 2020 and had this exchange with Jamie Dimon. This clip runs a little long, but it's worth listening to. Dimon inadvertently admits to lying while getting super pissed. Mr. Dimon, you are the star of the overdraft show. Your bank, JP Morgan, collects more than seven times as much money in overdraft fees per account than your competitors. So, Mr. Diamond, how much did JP Morgan collect in overdraft fees from their consumers in 2020? Well, I, you're, I think your numbers are totally inaccurate, but we'll have to sit down privately and so go through these that. These are public numbers. And, and I, also, I also want to point out we did not overdraft. Can, can you just account. answer my question? We, we how did much not did JP Morgan we collect? Did we did not overdraft at the Fed account. And at any request, so you never, I'm sorry, Mr. Diamond, that was, Mr. Diamond, that was not the question. Did you, you had an automatic protection. So I'm asking, you were recommended, the regulators recommended you offer that same kind of protection to your customers. How much, in fact, did JP Morgan collect in overdraft fees from their customers in 2020? Do you know the number? I don't know the number in front of me, but well, we, I actually we, have upon, the number in front of me. Upon it's request, one billion dollars. That's nearly one and a half billion dollars that you collected from your customers. Now, do you know how much J.P. Morgan's profit would have been in 2020 if you had followed the recommendation of the regulators and waived overdraft fees? to help struggling consumers? In other words, without that overdraft money, would your bank have been in financial trouble? We waived the fees for customers upon request if they were un- under stress because of COVID. You know, I, I appreciate that you want to duck this question. Do you know how much your profits would have been if you'd actually waived overdraft fees the rec- we, as we, the regulators we waived, recommended? We waived the fees every time. The answer is your profits would have been $27.6 billion. Notice how when Warren said that banks should have implemented automatic overdraft protections for customers, Diamond said we did, before then saying that overdraft fees were only returned to people who asked. Warren noted that overdraft fees disproportionately harm working class people, disproportionately people of color. But sure, Pat Toomey, the banking industry is subsumed by quote unquote wokeism. People like Toomey are just admitting that they believe corporate propaganda dog shit when the marketing departments churn out vague statements in support of Black Lives Matter. Just some of the dumbest people on earth amazed at how many people have openly admitted that they fall for corporate propaganda uh when they're tweeting and online and various things <laughs> and and so and stuff of that nature it's chip chat and we're joined by a sleepy chip givens but just because he's sleepy doesn't mean he's not bringing the sharp insights as he always sure. does for That's chip true. chat uh He's sleepy physically, but not of the mind today. Well, I'm sleepy because I, I had to interview and therefore could not sleep the night before um, due to stress. Uh, James Goodale, who was the New York Times general counsel during the Pentagon Papers uh, for a new limited podcast series I am doing that will debut on the 50th anniversary of, of the Pentagon Papers. We're between two names right now. Uh, we're between primary sources as a potential name and uh, 
burden of truth as the other potential. And it's a podcast series that will limit it series similar to Still Spine that will explore the First Amendment and other challenges faced by whistleblowers, truth tellers, journalist sources, etc. Uh, preferably mostly through primary interviews with, with whistleblowers themselves. So I had to interview Mr. Uh, Goodale this morning and therefore did not sleep last night. And now I am falling asleep while talking to you. Well, I'm excited about your new project. If it was anything... Uh, if I wake up for it, yes. If it was anything like your Still Spying podcast, uh, I'm sure other people will be excited to listen to it uh, as well. But I got to say, I'm a little disappointed you didn't uh, take the name I recommended of Chip Talk. You know, Sam, I'm saving Chip Ch Chip Talk for a non-limited podcast okay. series because it's such a good name. It would be a shame to use it for something with a finite end. That's true. Right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm saving Chip Talk for a podcast that will have neither a beginning nor an end. Hmm. Hmm. How existential. I'll existential. All right. Well, today we are talking about uh, Daniel Ellsberg's latest joint. He's back, baby. And he's leaking. He's leaking again. That's true. That, well, yes. Yes, that is that is that is that is a fair summation. And this so, involves the uh, Taiwan Straits incident. Yes. Go on. So uh, last Saturday in the online edition of the New York Times and then appearing in the print edition of the New York Times later on, Charles Savage had an article uh, titled, I will tell you the title of the article because that's the use of computers, um, Risk of Nuclear War Over Taiwan in 1950, previously known. And what we found out was that in uh, 1966, the Pentagon or someone like that uh, composed a secret study of the Taiwan Straits crisis. Uh, this, this, this report has since then been released on the Rand Corporation website, although with some redactions. Uh, Daniel Ellsberg, we didn't know this until recently-ish, uh, when he was copying the Pentagon Papers, he also copied the Taiwan Straits uh, crisis study from 1966. Now, in 2017, Daniel Ellsberg publishes a book called The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner, where he talks about, for the first time, his uh, role in uh, U.S. nuclear, nuclear war plans and, and mentions the sort of... Uh, fact that the U.S. came closer in '58 to to doing a first strike nuclear attack on China than ever known before. He mentions in the footnotes of his book he's published this this study on his website. Uh, this was just sitting on the internet on the day on a website between 2017 and 2021, and people just now <laughs> have noticed uh, that it is unredacted, that it has a section that the redacted version of the study uh, does not have, which discusses U.S. military plans for a first strike nuclear attack on China in 1958. Uh, the Pentagon and the brave people there all thought that this would provoke a 
retaliatory Soviet nuclear strike. It would potentially uh, provoke a nuclear strike on Taiwan, the country they are supposedly defending, as well as probably on Japan. And they decide that the risk is worth it anyways, that, that you know, defending Taiwan from, from China is such an important thing. It doesn't matter if Taiwan gets nuked as, as a result. A very interesting way to defend an island. Um, and it, it, it's just... It's just um, really bonkers stuff. So here's a section from the New York Times article. Among other details, the page details the pages that the government censored in the official release describe the attitude of Gen- General Lawrence S. Cutter, the top Air Force commander for the Pacific. He wanted authorization for a first-use nuclear attack on mainland China at the start of any armed conflict. To that end, he praised a plan that would start by dropping atomic bombs on Chinese airfields, but not other targets, arguing that its relative restraint mm. would make it harder for skeptics of nuclear warfare in the American government to block the plan. Nuclear weapons, famous for their for being a form of restraint. Uh, Eisenhower, to his credit, blocks this bonkers idea but essentially the pentagon did not believe it could maintain sort of the nationalist presence on on uh taiwan with just conventional weapons the chinese mainland china would would, would, would take the island and therefore they should do a first strike nuclear attack and again i will remind you that they believed retaliatory strikes from the soviet union were likely but that the risk was worth it and the scariest thing about it is this would have happened if Eisenhower just said yes. Like, that's all it would have required. And to this day, that's all it would require. No, yes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it's it's very shocking. You know, there's, there's just this part in it where there's no alternative but to conduct nuclear strikes deep into China as far north as Shanghai, almost certainly involve nuclear retaliation against Taiwan and possibly Okawana, the Japanese island where American military forces are based, but he stressed that if the national policy is to defend the offshore islands, then the consequences had to be accepted. I mean, these people uh, were, not- a lot of these people were also like war criminals already who had uh, supported the, the, the fire bombings of yes. some of the largest cities in Germany and Japan uh, throughout World War Two. So, I guess to them, it isn't really the biggest leap to suddenly uh, start using the nukes right off the bat. Uh, It's not a leap to start using the nukes right off the bat. But when you're considering that nuclear retaliation is likely, I think that's a whole other level of right. When we drop atomic weapons. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess we drop atomic weapons on Japan. Right. Japan wasn't going to fire nuclear weapons back on us. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's a very I mean, it's it's horrible, and I'm not saying we should value Japanese life less than American life. I I don't believe it at all, but from, like, the standpoint of an American general being like, yeah, we'll probably get nuked if we do this, but, you know, oh, well, we have to defend the islands, and then we have John Foster Dulles telling us nobody would very much mind the loss of the offshore islands, but that loss would mean further communist aggression. Nothing seems worth a world war until you looked at the effect of not standing up to each challenge posed. 
So we don't really care if we lose these islands or not, but we're going to provoke a nuclear world war on this principle, I guess. Not a very good one either. It's uh, Dr. Strangelove shit, and admittedly, I and please don't berate me, I still haven't seen the movie, but... I haven't it, either. Oh, okay. Good. No, no berating I've seen here. it, but I'm notorious for not remembering any movie I've ever seen, but I have a, I have a, a vague... Uh, understanding but i think a nuclear weapon is launched by accident uh, on its way well I, I i i'm just thinking of the famous scene where the 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 pilot is like to to he's riding the bomb down onto the target the the you know like this is how uh absolutely war crazy um the united states government was in in, in the 50s uh you know, they were literally willing to to risk a, a whole bunch of people getting killed, um, including probably many Americans, um, to do this harebrained apocalyptic scheme. And if I'm not mistaken, <clears throat> there was also talk, uh, you know, Sam was bringing up World War II, but just a few years earlier in the Korean War, didn't did MacArthur not want to drop nukes on China, as as part of that as part of the U.S. military plans there, or am I mistaking that? I don't know. That would not surprise me. I'm not. I'm not an expert on on this subject. Yeah, I, I've 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 read that that was the case that they wanted to deploy tactical nukes, and throughout the '50s, that's like what the U.S. was. They were thinking of all sorts of different ways to deploy nukes in the water. Uh, having like nuclear mines uh, floating around, but also there were tons of voices uh, within like the Truman administration who, for those few years where the U.S. had the monopoly on the bomb, wanted to do preemptive strikes against the Soviet Union uh, and other countries just to make sure that they could never get the bomb. Um, and it's, I guess, very deranged. Yes. Uh, thankfully, the, the those people. And when I was making the comment earlier, I meant just like. You know, there isn't the chain of command when it comes to launching weapons that could potentially destroy all of humanity or at the least millions and millions of people is is one. <laughs> it's one person, really. And Joseph Biden. Yeah, I guess there are efforts recently, uh, legislative efforts to change that. Um, but they yes. don't appear to be be going anywhere, especially now that Trump is no longer in office. It would uh Ed Markey reintroduced that bill in February 2021. The bill that would prohibit the president from doing a first strike nuclear attack without having against a nation that has not already attacked the U.S. or a U.S. ally unless Congress gives prior approval, Hmm. which is sort of a narrow set of circumstances. Yeah, so this this was uh this was MacArthur. This is from nationalinterest.org. Uh he said he said, quote, uh granted they're not like this uh, it sounds like the sort of website where they would say like, "Oh, this might be a good idea," but it, I can assure you this is not the case. They're not um saying that MacArthur was correct here, that but it's a it, cites what he said, quote, the enemy's air would have first been taken out. I would have dropped between 30 to 50 tactical atomic bombs on his air bases and other depots strung across the neck of Manchuria from just across the Yalu at Antung to the neighborhood of Hunshan 
Um, so basically, yeah, he wanted to nuke China. I said William F. Buckley, I believe, in the Buckley the Doll television debates. That's one of the things that Gore Vidal keeps bringing up. And is that when Gore Vidal called him a crypto fascist? They did that, like, they were on television, like, five nights a week. I don't know. <laughs> William, William he Buckley called him was a crypto like, fascist every night. <laughs> and then William F. Buckley was like, I'll punch you in the goddamn mouth if you call me that again. <laughs> well, something. I think and, he made a, a slur. Homophobic yeah, remark. A homophobic slur remark, too, yeah. yeah. That and I believe right. Gore Vidal called Buckley a crypto-Nazi and later said he meant to say crypto-fascist. Ah. But he called him a crypto-Nazi and William F. Buckley said, you know, call me a Nazi again and I'll punch you in the face, you goddamn queer, or something like that. I yeah, don't know. I think that's exactly what he said, yeah. I've watched that well, a lot on YouTube since I was a child, again and again and again. Not as much fun as uh, Gore Vidal and Norman Mailer, though, when Norman Mailer just randomly interjects, look, Gore, we all know I stabbed my wife. And I actually didn't know Norman <laughs> Mailer had stabbed his wife before, before he said that. Way to neutralize <laughs> your enemy's main attack right off the bat. It's just, just, just in this middle of this argument with goes, look, Gore Vidal. We all know that I stabbed my wife, and it's like, well, actually, I didn't. <laughs> Yikes! That was oh, that was great television. That was on um, Dick Cavett, perhaps the greatest television show ever aired on American TV. Yeah, it's pretty. It's good. Yeah, TV TV used to be better. Yeah, I, t everything used to be better, Sam. Well, <laughs> maybe. Maybe These not. days you buy a pair of socks and they go up in a day. It used to be you'd buy socks. They'd last your whole lifetime. That's That might be true. However, I have... That's true. I that was Probably not. No. I was just going to say that I have seen the uh, the magazine photos of party food uh, in the 60s. Lord help. And it's, yeah, it's like everything was gelatin and it just looks <laughs> and weird cream and cheese. <laughs> also, yeah. all the racism. Yeah. Yes. Um, Even more racism and sexism. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so lot, yeah, lots of bad stuff happening, and the but threat the of ever-present nuclear left. war. Uh, to get yeah. back on track here, and oh, yeah. we're um, having a conversation about something of note. Yeah, I'm not sure. There's there's much more to add here. I don't know if you have anything well, else. Well, the other just... thing that's worth interesting here is that Daniel Ellsberg is making a big deal about this at this time. Uh, for a couple reasons. Once he he is concerned about the threat of nuclear war, he's concerned about increased uh, conflict between the U.S. and China in relationship to Taiwan. And he's also basically at age 90, he's age 90 now, daring the Department of Justice to indict him under the Espionage Act, although the Espionage Act uh, charges in relationship to the Pentagon Papers are thrown out. Since he had not published this at the time, in theory, in theory, he could be charged again under the Espionage Act. He would like to be charged so he can challenge the constitutionality of it. I don't think he's going to be charged under it. I think that's, you know, highly unlikely. But it's an interesting stand to take at age 90 and brings me back to the uh, topic of primary sources the podcast where I will be interviewing whistleblowers about the Espionage Act and other related things. So you've settled on the name. Is that is that the name? 
maybe it's primary sources. Maybe it's burden of truth. Maybe it's burden of sources. I do. Maybe it's think... primary burden. Primary burden. Okay. At first, yeah. I thought I think I don't think is primary sources. I think the CNN show is called yes, reliable, reliable sources. sources. Yeah, okay. Yes, yes. All right, I, then... I initially rejected primary source. Like that's a CNN show. Yeah, that that's what I thought at reliable first. Reliable sources. But yeah, then I read uh, reliable. Yeah, yeah. I could go on CNN. I could host that show. You wouldn't want that. And they, I would well, like, and they would I want. Think I would Chip, like. let's be honest. They wouldn't want that, not because of your skill, but because of what you're going to say. I would love to be the host of CNN's media criticism show, Reliable Sources. I, I watch think out, Brian I, Stelter. I think, I think he said Jeremy Scale on people on 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 before. I think I would be very good at hosting a CNN media criticism show where I get to talk shit about media that is not CNN. Well, last um, week, Brian Stelter was badgering the uh, AP about why they're working with Hamas. So you could definitely oh. do a lot better than him. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't regularly watch primary sources. but Or reliable know, I, sources. Or reliable sources. As I regularly record primary sources, I do not regularly watch or record reliable sources. But I, 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 I think I'd be really great for a, a uh, Sunday morning CNN media criticism show. I think you would too. Now there's two two thoughts here on this with the name though. It is very similar to reliable sources and that could either be bad in the sense that like people confuse the two, but good in the sense that look, reliable sources is probably watched by several hundred thousand people every week. They probably search for it. They might accidentally search for primary sources and find your podcast. So you might get a bunch of new listeners just as a result of having a name that's similar. You also mm. might get a bunch of like high school honors, social Fine. studies students who did not listen to their teacher when he explained what a primary source is. And it's the night before their research paper <laughs> is due. And if, they do not use any primary sources. They will they will fail and uh, get kicked off the lacrosse team and not get that scholarship. Well, a primary source must be a whistleblower. Uh, that is one of the definitions. Must be against the FBI. They could learn from worse. They can they can learn from worse people and worse sources. What a primary source is. That is true. That is true. I I don't know if we'll actually define the term primary sources on the primary source podcast. Or if it's burden of truth, we'll probably not define the words burden or truth. I think you should go with a tech name and just name it like... Name it Talker. Name it Talker, but spell it T-A-L-K-R. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's that. Or <laughs> like... Um, never mind. All right. Uh, Chip Gibbons. He's on Twitter. At people people listening at home miss all of my facial expressions. I, I think that's a, a great a great crime that all of my my facial reactions do. Name it something coin so that people think it's <laughs> cryptocurrency Chip coin. And, and and give you like a million dollars. Coin. Espionage coin, pod coin. You go to jail with that one. Nope, um, trust no, me. I, I'm not saying you, you should solicit the money, but if someone happens to give you the money, I'd then you don't... I'm saying the FBI is probably very concerned about espionage coin. We could get... A cryptocurrency used to pay uh, spies. <laughs> Chip coin to the moon. <laughs> All right, Chip. Goodbye, Sam. Goodbye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. <laughs>